Now, before we jump into this episode, a quick warning, there's some swearing. Being sick all the time helps me, helps me focus in on like, I don't have a lot of energy to spend, so I don't have any time to fuck around and I just need to do the shit that I need to do. And that's it. It's pretty fucking simple. Hello, and welcome to the future. I am Chris Doe. Let me start this episode by asking you this question. Do you ever think about your own mortality? Like the fact that you're going to die one day, and if you're lucky, that is, you don't die suddenly, and you have a moment to reflect back on your life and ask, did I waste the life I was given? Did I seize every opportunity to make the most of myself? Well, that question takes us 7,497 miles away to an Australian nurse, Bronnie Ware. She took care of terminally ill patients with only a few weeks of life to live. And in talking to them, she noticed a common theme. When she would ask them, what do you wish you had done with your life? What are your regrets? The response to which was, I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself instead of living the life others expected of me. Here's a clip from her TED Talk. Almost every regret came down to a lack of courage. So, you know, how do we actually get the courage to start living true to the song that our own heart is singing and and to honour that calling? One of the first things we can do is face the fact that we're going to die. According to a 2011 report from the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the average lifespan of an American male is 76.4 years. For women, it's a little bit longer, like 4.8 years longer. Somehow women manage to live to an average of 81.2 years. So for me, I'm past my halfway point. That gives me a little bit of time to complete the things I set out to do. So there's still some hope. But what if your life expectancy fell way short of that? What if growing up you were in and out of the hospital What impact does that have on your psyche? Knowing that you've got an internal timer with a very limited number of days left. I have to imagine life becomes a little more precious. Time, as it were, is not on your side. Well, that describes our next guest, to the T. For him, this isn't a what-if scenario. It's a what-now situation. Today on the show, we're going to be talking to Alex Preston creator of Hyperlight Drifter. And the best way I can describe this, it's, it's a retro-style 2D action RPG in the vein of the classic 8- and 16-bit games. His story is a remarkable tale of triumph over adversity. It begins with him being in the hospital, which is nothing unusual for him. But this particular visit was very different. He got really sick. Let me give you some context. At one point, he had dropped to 90 pounds. 90 pounds for someone who's six feet tall. And in his hospital stay, he had racked up all sorts of bills. And despite having health insurance, he had to start a GoFundMe campaign to pay off the mounting debt. This is where my path with Alex intersects for this story. It's around this time that I'm seeing his photos circulate on Facebook with a What's Ailing Alex headline. I was almost afraid to click on it. The photos that I saw 
he looked emaciated, bearded, crazy, electrified hair. He had tubes sticking out of his nose and stomach. Then one day, a mutual friend, Greg Gunn, asked me, Do you know what happened to Alex? And when he asked me that, my heart sank. I had feared the worst. Having realized that, Greg quickly jumped in and said, No, 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 nothing like that. Alex's Kickstarter campaign is blowing up. Alex has always been an avid gamer, but one of his dreams was not to only play games, but to make them. This is his story. How, lying on a hospital bed, with what little energy he had each day, he got onto his laptop. I kind of imagine a person in a well crawling out of it day by day. And this was him. He was determined to design his dream. Alex, welcome to the show. Hello. And again, I'm super happy that you're here. Take us back. No, what, what year was this? It was a couple years back, right? Yeah, this is 2013. 2013. And you're in the hospital, and I know that they're doing all sorts of tests on you, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. And you have, like, so many food allergies, right? Well, it's like a, it's not quite food allergies. It's just a system that's incredibly sensitive for any number of reasons. And there's, I have a genetic disorder, and I have specific viruses and diseases and all sorts of things knocking at the door. It's kind of like that Mr. Burns thing back in that Simpsons episode where he's got everything. Mm -hmm. And because he has everything, it balances out so that nothing actually kills him. Um, (laughs) But it's just like a whole host of issues that kind of end up fucking me over. Yeah, I remember seeing you in the kitchen. You always prepare your own lunch, and we had a brief conversation about this. But what are some of the things that you don't eat? You don't eat dairy? I basically eat three things. You you only eat three things? I pretty much only Because everything three else you, you don't want to even mess around with. Because my body decides, like, even if I could eat it for a couple of days after that, it's like, no, I'm, I'm done with that. Wow. Okay, so what are the three things you can eat? Right now, I'm eating uh, a lot of beef and a lot of chicken and a tiny tiny bit of ginger every once in a while and that's it no vegetables once in a while again like once a month or something i'll try and introduce greens back into my diet but that lasts maybe a week if i'm lucky before my body starts reacting again can you drink alcohol oh fuck no (laughs) (laughs) my body just gets worse it's it's a you know it's destroying itself gradually I couldn't eat any food at a certain point. I had had some procedure and a series of medications that I took that just led to the point where my system kind of collapsed in on itself. I ended up at about 90 pounds at one point. So I ended up hospitalizing myself um, and got a G-tube stuck in my guts um, because that was the only thing that could save my life at that point um, where you feed yourself through um, different medication, medicated foods. The day that I launched my Kickstarter, I went to a new doctor um, up in Santa Barbara, this, in this spa um, that was doing some experimental stuff. And I started getting treatment there. And within a month, I was able to actually eat some more food. Um, and that was the month that my Kickstarter was also going crazy. So it was two life-changing events happening at the very same time. Man, you're in the hospital. You don't look good. 
you told me whatever little bit of energy you had in the day, and it wasn't a lot, you would get up and you would try to build this dream of yours. Mm-hmm. And I know you're a hardcore gamer. Like you kick everybody's butt at Street Fighter at the office, right? Nobody even tries to challenge you. And here you are on your deathbed, and if you had 30 minutes of energy, I don't know, did you whip out a notebook, a laptop? Like, how- Yeah, I have my laptop in the hospital. Okay. Yeah. So that was your just, uh, was that a, a way that you got through every day? Because, you know, you have to have some kind of hope in your life, right, to keep moving forward and not give up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, dying is boring. So <laughs> you got to do something with your time. Laying there watching reruns of Monk or anything else while you're wasting away, you can only bear that for so long. Um, so I, I tried to do something productive with my time. So uh, in, the, in the early stages, what did that look like? What were you doing? Uh, I was sitting at the computer, drawing, concepting, and then working with uh, my friend Bo, um, prototyping out the game. Mm-hmm. He's, he's off-site or he's visiting you in the hospital? What's going on? No, he lived in Pasadena and we we're just okay. working remotely through the wonders of Skype and the internet. Bo's a friend of yours from... He was a friend Bo? of a friend and that was recommended to me as somebody that could help me learn to use GameMaker at the time. And then he ended up just working with me. Um, we would basically just sit online and watch each other's screens. So I'd watch him code and he'd watch me draw and we'd kind of go back and forth on a lot of things. So you get, you're developing this with whatever waiting bits of energy that you have you've partnered up with Bo to, to develop this game can you describe to people what hyperlight drifter is uh it's a video game chris mm-hmm. <laughs> um, no it's uh it's pixel art uh so it's something in the vein of older 16-bit classics and if you think of like the old overhead zelda games that's the best comparison i can give you is it an adventure game yeah, action adventure. Action adventure. You slash some things up, kill some monsters, um, is explore some side spaces. scroller or you move through? No, it's overhead. Overhead. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it, it's kind of a, kind of an homage to a lot of different genres and things sure. that you love, right? It's yeah. Everything that Alex loves about video games, kind of. And other things too, into. anime and whatever else, like okay. movies. Yeah, you play as this character in the red cape, and well, you don't always have a red cape, um, and you're. You're really just murdering a lot of <laughs> monsters for most of it. But there's, you know, the the larger underlying component to this game is the exploration and the environmental storytelling and paying attention. Like, we ask a lot of the player to pay attention to all the different aspects in this world. Um, and, you know, the if you want to glean from this game... A narrative structure then you're gonna have to sit and really observe um, and so yes it could just be monster slaying and hack and slash and some nice music and uh, pretty pictures and that's great if that's what you get from it but there's there's a lot of a underlying meaning and underlying story that uh, you might be missing out on if you if you only focus on that stuff Tell me about the Kickstarter project. How did that take off? And tell me about what happened there. You know, Bo and I were, well, we were working on the prototype for about nine months. And I told him that I wanted to do a Kickstarter. And so I ended up piecing together um, a trailer for it and piecing together the entire layout for the page and all that stuff, the reward structure and all that, um, which is a huge undertaking. You know, it's 
not a simple thing to put together a, a decent Kickstarter. So I learned from other successful uh, projects that have been put up over the years. Collating all that data and putting into something that was my own was a big undertaking, but I knew I didn't really have any other roots because I didn't want to be beholden to a publisher. Um, and I certainly didn't want to ask like family and friends for money to fund this thing. So the public funding route seemed like the best one to go down. It was also probably a good way to validate if other people other than yourself and Bo were interested in this kind of project, right? Sure, yeah. And so when you put it up, what was your goal? Like if you were gonna be successful, what was your goal? Uh, I had put it up for 27,000. Why 27,000 and not 50,000 or 100,000? Well, he had calculated what he and Bo needed to survive and deliver a minimum viable product. So you start the Kickstarter campaign. Take me through those critical first couple of hours. I was up in Santa Barbara with my family going to this new doctor, and I launched it before. I went to the first appointment with with her. Um, and then as I was sitting during the appointment, I was tracking and watching the progress of it. And so that first day, we blew past the 27,000 within a few hours. So it was it was hard to ignore and not respond to all the messages and uh, feed into that stuff because I didn't have a Twitter account and I had to make that and I had to do suddenly because things ramped up so quickly I had to do things that I hadn't really planned for sometimes Kickstarter projects don't meet their goals sure not even close actually oh yeah in your heart and your mind at that point in time what, what kind of realistic goals did you set for yourself I prepare for any number of contingencies because I have to and, and just on the health side of things for myself I prepared for it to fail, I prepared for it to actually meet the goal, I prepared for it to double the goal or maybe even triple it with some hope, but I didn't prepare for, you know, the amount of attention and money that we actually received in the end. So even in your best planning, yeah. It it surpassed all of that. Yeah, cuz I, you know, I'm not the type that's like, oh, this is some dope shit everyone's right. going to fucking love. It's like I'm <laughs> I'm the type that uh second guesses himself all the time and is super critical of myself and the things that I'm putting out there and I'm I'm oftentimes afraid to show anybody anything unless I'm really comfortable with it and you know I'm I'm it's very personal work so putting that up on the internet for anybody to see is terrifying so I want to tap into a little bit of that because I think that's going to resonate a lot with our audience that you have this thing, it's very deeply personal, and you're a fine artist, right? Mm-hmm. That's what you went to school for. And fine artist and a giant nerd. Okay. <laughs> That's a double deadly combination. Yeah. Uh, so it's it, you're in a very vulnerable state. When you first were ready to like release this into the wild, what allowed you to push through all that self-doubt and being critical and like, what if people hate it or it's stupid? It's not as good as I want it to be. So what, what helped to push you through? Well, the simple answer is my health situation. It's like facing life and death scenarios on a regular basis. Everything else starts to melt away and become less important. It's like you focus on the things that actually matter. And so stressful situations like, oh, God, is anybody going to like this? It's like, who the fuck cares? It's like, I'm going to go die pretty soon probably. So whatever. I want to do this. I'm going to put it out there. If it resonates, great. If not, I'll do something else. Death has a way of putting things into perspective. Your own mortality, and we, we've talked about it before with Steve Jobs, with Yumna, with all these people, with Gary Vaynerchuk. He's like, you know, uh, to motivate people is like, you will die. Three words. Three words. You're gonna die. 
Yeah, that's inspiration. Do something about it. Do something about it. Fucking love you. <laughs> love you too. Take care. You knew that timeline was much shorter than most of us. Yeah, I mean, I've I've faced that reality since I was a kid. You know, I have a heart condition, and my parents are very protective of anything that I couldn't couldn't do because I was physically limited. It's like, don't go play football, don't do these sports, don't do all these different things because you might have a heart attack or somebody might hit you wrong and your heart might explode. You know, so there's always a, a warning sign above my head. So I was very familiar with the realities of um, humanity and our frailness especially my own. If today were the last day of my life, would I want to do what I am about to do today? Remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. All external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death leaving only what is truly important. Remembering that you are going to die is the best way I know to avoid the trap of thinking you have something to lose. Death is a incredibly strong motivator for being productive and the closer I got to it, the more productive I felt like being. You know, I just got some chills when you were talking there. And, and like little goosebump things are happening to me right now. In a way, all your frailties and all the conditions you have actually make you more invincible in an odd kind of paradoxical way. I guess. Right? I know. I you're invincible know. in the mind. Nothing can take you down because you've already you, you already come to peace with your own mortality. And I'm what still else can a, hurt you? But I'm still a human. Like, I still had those fears of people liking the, the game or not. It's just the severity of my situation helped to quell some of those fears and temper some of those fears in comparison to the much greater fear. I think you have this ability that a lot of creative people don't have. And that's not to talk about your creative talent and all that stuff. But you have this ability to say no. Hmm. And no is a super powerful word. You have this ability to pull back, look at the situation, and say it's not right for a number of reasons. Where does that come from? I'm a very blunt and straightforward person because because of how I grew up, because of how I was raised in many ways, and mostly because I just don't have the fucking time to waste to beat around the bush and do things I don't want to do. You know, the first time... I was hospitalized um, a bunch of years ago for the severity of my condition. I had decided, like, I don't want to do anything that I don't want to do. When you can distill down the things that you actually want out of your career and out of life, it's easier to say, like, that doesn't fit into my, um, my plan or just into my aesthetic or whatever you want to frame it as. And so... Yeah, there are plenty of opportunities that arise when you have something that's successful and being able to say no, I can understand because I know plenty of artists out there that are just like, yes, 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 that sounds great, I want to do that. And being able to filter that stuff and, and really distill down what is important to you is a hard thing to hone because you don't want to miss opportunities. And being able to parse what is going to be a beneficial opportunity for you, for your career, for your happiness, for your future, 
versus what's just going to be a temporary boon or even what can become a disaster if you get involved with it or drag you down um, is a skill that takes time to really hone. I think the way I hear what you just said was that your health condition has given you a clarity of focus that most people don't have Yeah, for a number of different reasons. And I think as creative people, we're very much into pleasing people. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we want to get the adulation of other people. We want to get the approval and the validation and all that stuff. So a famous um, uh, what a producer says, I want to work on this. And you're almost like more tempted to make them happy and fulfill their vision. And mm. the way that you had just said it was super clear to me. Like you knew, you know what you want to do. And when things don't sound like that, you have the st- clarity of mind to say, nope, that's actually taking me away from my vision and what I want to build. And that's taking you closer to yours. And yeah. I find that that to be a very unique and rare thing amongst creative people. It's, I mean, yeah, the, there are certain things that my health and situation has afforded me. And that, that is one of the biggest assets is the ability to filter that stuff. And, um, I'm not an asshole about it. I'm not like, I was, was going to ask you that. No. Do, do a lot of people interpret that as just arrogance? Sure, some people can. Yeah. They can interpret it as arrogance or as being a jerk or whatever else. Like, But I'm I'm trying to be very tactful about like, hey, I have a lot of stuff that I'm doing that I want to do, and I can't necessarily jump into that. It just doesn't fit the path that I'm on right now. Coming up, we're going to talk to Alex about launching a Kickstarter project and what happens when you go way past your goals like way, way, way past your goals. Not by two times or four times, but over 20 times. But before we do that, I just want to say that I hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you like this type of content, then you'll love all the free resources on our site, thefuture.com. From personal branding worksheets to project management and pricing guides, you'll find it all by clicking resources at the top of the page. These downloads are perfect for designers, both in-house and freelancers, agency owners, and creative entrepreneurs who are interested in growing their brand awareness, revenue, and reach. Just remember, future.com, and click resources at the top. You originally were trying to raise $26,000, 27000 dollars and you blew that past, like, how, how fast did you hit that goal? Um, I don't know, like the first few hours or something okay. like that. But there were, you know, there were times where I, when I hit 100,000, I was like, whoa, that's, that's crazy. And that was within... That's almost 5X. Yeah, that was within X. within the first day or two. You know, it was, it was very quick. And so I started to freak out later during the campaign when we started to hit the 400, 500 mark. 500,000? Right. I was like, how far can this go? How far will it go? I settled on looking at the numbers that are coming in and not trying to project what's what we're actually going to end up with and just focus on the hundreds of messages that I had to respond to and other responsibilities that I had and not dwell on what are we going to make? Because if you do that, you're going to drive yourself fucking crazy. So you wind up, the campaign reaches its conclusion. Yeah. Do you remember the exact amount that it hit? Uh, it was around 645000 It was hard to wrap my head around that amount of money at that time. Well, especially since I grew up pretty pretty broke as a kid. You know, we were like lower class. You know, we weren't dirt broke. We could afford food and all that stuff. We weren't on food stamps or anything, but still we we were we were not wealthy by any means. And so even going through college I struggled a lot because it's expensive to go to school. It's more expensive to go to art school. 
um, taking out loans and being in debt and all that great shit that every American has to go through now. Um, and, and a future that's kind of unsure, especially as a unsure. fine artist, right? Yeah. And I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do anyway. It's like, ah, oh, I'm going to become a painter. And that's great. But I know the odds of becoming a successful painter are, are pretty narrow. Um, and I saw most of my classmates drop away from fine arts just because there's not a lot of jobs out there, opportunities out there for that kind of work. Like the gallery system and that whole world is really insular and it's more about networking and or getting lucky and sparking a fire. Um, but, you know, I didn't want to be a teacher because that's what most of the folks in my classes end up doing to supplement their income with their fine art stuff. And I was like, hey, that sounds shitty. And I was working for various artists, which is not fun either because then basically you're making their work for them and you're not getting any credit for it, which was dog shit. And I was doing commercial jobs too, like illustrating and all that stuff, storyboarding, VFX stuff, which is a little more rewarding and paid a lot better, but ultimately it wasn't my own project and I didn't have the creative control that I wanted because I'm, I'm a control freak. Coming out of school and doing all this stuff for a few years, I didn't know, I was still finding out what, what the hell I actually really wanted to do. At that time when I knew you, you were freelancing, you were doing a couple of gigs here and there. I have to imagine uh, there wasn't a lot of money in your bank account. I had drained all my money on hospital bills. Oh. I had to do a GoFundMe before that. Oh, because you didn't have health insurance? Cause you were I had health insurance, but because of the American wonderful healthcare system, which is a piece of garbage, garbage hole, flaming dumpster pit, as many angry, mean things as I can say about it, doesn't matter if you have insurance, you'll still get charged up the wazoo and you'll never know how much you're going to, when it's going to end. And so I was deeply in debt there and had to raise, you know, over $20,000 to just pay some basic bills. Seeing $640,000 in your bank account, mm -hmm. that's going to mess with you a little bit, no? I was just excited that I had more opportunity. Yeah. And it wasn't until really the end of development that I started to actually understand what half a million dollars really can do, um, which in a video game is not that much. Right. It's really not a lot of money when it comes to developing a game and you have four or five people full time over the course of two and a half years. Like that shit will go fast. And I stretched that budget as, but as much as I could. Half a million, 600,000, like it sounds like a lot and it is, but for a full-time game development uh, process, it's not. It's really, really not. Word gets out about the game and even reaches to Kanye West. And despite somebody reaching out, Alex is skeptical. Some guy that claimed to be part of his crew contacted me. Um, and he's like, hey, yeah, I represent Kanye West. Uh, he wants to talk to you. He wants to meet. He wants to hang out. Um, and I was like, okay, <laughs> sure. This is like a Nigerian scam or something. Right. I was like, okay, I'm just going to get robbed and stabbed yeah. if I go here because this is fake. <laughs> so, you know, I took um, part of the crew with me, part of the team, um, Teddy and Bo, um, and myself to go meet up and they gave us the address and all this stuff and again this was slightly after the Kickstarter a couple weeks later that we set up the meeting and we rolled up to his house which was like this uh, very stark looking severe looking um, structure up in the Hollywood Hills with a huge um, truck outside with some very angry 
hefty men guarding it. So it's like, okay, so maybe this is actually legit. And we went in and Kanye West was meeting, finishing up his meeting with, um, oh, who's that guy from the Black Eyed Peas? Will I Am? Yeah, Will I Am. He was hanging out with Will I Am. I was like, oh, that's Will I Am. I don't really like his music that much, but that's, <laughs> that's interesting. Um, he seems he seems fine. We we ended up hanging out with him for we showed him the game. Uh, we talked about Akira. Um, we talked about the Jetsons a lot because he fucking loves the Jetsons. Um, we talked the about cartoon. All, yeah. Okay. We talked about all sorts of stuff, um, and we hung out on his giant couches, which were like beds basically. But uh, he seemed like a very normal person. And what do you want with you? He wants to collaborate with people that he thinks are like up his alley or that he likes the work that they're making. And he's always looking for people to collaborate with, whether it be fashion, whether it be um, movies, whether it be anything else. Um, and so he was looking to get into games. And he saw our Kickstarter. And he's like, I fucking love Akira. I saw the aesthetic. It's really cool. It's like, I want to make music for your mm-hmm. game, um, which was very flattering and super cool. But at the same time, I already had my dream composer, Disaster Piece, Rich Freeland, lined up for this. So it was like, a, oh, how do I navigate this situation? But that wasn't really brought up until the end of the meeting right. anyway. Like when we were out, like walking out of the meeting, it's like, oh yeah, what do you, what do you actually want? Because it's mostly like, hey, here's our game. And then we shot the shit for 45 minutes or an hour. And then his next meeting rolled in for like movie producers. Um, and we sat in on that too because we didn't really actually end the meeting. So it was, it was a little ambiguous, amorphous. Yeah, but ultimately you figured out that he wanted to score or write music. Yeah, we for your we game. left at a certain point, and he's like, "Hey, yeah, I want to I want to write the music for your game." And it's like that's super cool. I don't know how he works with other people, how he collaborates with other people. I don't know like what kind of branding he wants to put on this. And while I love his music, it's like, how do I make that fit with the game and the aesthetic? Like, so here you are, you're meeting with Kanye West. W- w- did, did that phase you at all? I don't get starstruck by a lot of folks or, nerv- or nervous in a lot of situations. All these things are lining up for you that it's all falling into place. You know, sometimes I, I say to Aaron, man, the, the plan is happening and I wanted it to happen this way. But when it actually happens, you're like, God, it wasn't just a dream. It was, it's real and it's... It's almost like this high that you can get. Being in that situation, it is hard to get perspective at the time. And so even though all these things are lining up and stuff is going really well and all these opportunities are presenting themselves, it's too fast to really rationalize. There were times where, yes, I had to take that breather and sit back. And then at that point, like after we were done with work, it's like, holy fuck, dude, like I have half a million dollars. I have all the, like, we fucking met Kanye West. Like, we're working with all the people that we want to work with. Like, this is crazy. So, yeah, at certain times you can take stock and really pull it in and be like, this is a very different direction in my life than I had expected at a certain point. Um, And these are all the things that I wanted out of this, and that's amazing. But during the production, it's just like heads down, get to work. And I'm not, I don't have the luxury of, like, sitting there being fascinated by like, oh, look how lucky and wonderful the thing is. Like, no, man, just like get our shit done. Let's do it. At a certain point, you were taking meetings with a lot of publishers. Hmm. Like everybody all of a sudden became interested in you. Um, yeah, I mean, during during the Kickstarter itself, I think this happens to any Kickstarter game that 
blows up and gets attention of the immediate of the media and um of the general community gaming community where publishers will reach out and they'll say hey we can help you you got all this money and you need support because we can push your game we have great relationships with sony or microsoft or all these platform holders and we can market your game we can do all these things for you um that you can't do on your own um or that maybe you can and it's just like we'll make it way easier for you and comfortable and you just focus on the stuff you need to do i don't know we talk to any number of publishers out there i, I don't even know how many but um, enough for me to know, like, uh, this is probably not a route that I want to go down. Because they're gonna Having publishers it. didn't sit well with Alex's sense of fairness. They were going to swoop in at the 11th hour and would force him to dilute shares with people who had worked the hardest. My naive mind at that early point, I was like, nah, I can do it myself. On the one hand, I admire his loyalty to his team, but I couldn't help to wonder, was he blinded by hubris, thinking he could do this by himself? Would he run into problems that plague so many first-time developers? Would he later regret his decision? It was a nightmare. It was hard. It was really, really hard. It was almost harder than making the game itself, like releasing the game on all these different platforms. And it took its toll stress-wise and time-wise on me. So there is absolutely value in what publishers do and the deals that they're offering. So I need to wrap this up, but I can't let you get out of the studio without asking you these two questions. What's next for you? And then I'll follow up with the next question. Mm -hmm. uh, what is next? We are working on our next project. Shrouded in mystery. I mean... <laughs> You're working on another video game? Yeah, we're working on another video game. Is it anything to do with the first title or something brand new? New IP? I mean, I'm not going to get into the detail about that stuff. <laughs> That's not even a detailed question. It is. That's super really? revealing. All right. Man of mystery. Okay. I, listen, man. Like, I don't want to give anybody false hopes or expectations or anything. Like, That's you, fair. It's not about, like, ooh, I'm mysterious. Mysterious for the sake of being mysterious. It's like, no, I want to be guarded about this stuff because I don't want to I don't want to talk about it until we're ready to actually reveal some legit details. Okay. How do people find out about the game or you or anything? You have social media stuff that you want to, like, throw out there? Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter. Um at Heart Machine Z uh, with a Z at the end like Dragon Ball Z. Nice. Because um, Heart Machine was taken. And Instagram, same name. You can go to our website, heartmachine.com. Uh, we have a Facebook fan page or whatever, promotion page, Hyperlight Drifter. I'm Alex Preston and you're listening to the future. Future is hosted by me, Chris Doe. Our show is edited by Aaron Zakelli. Big thanks to Adam Sanborn for composing our theme song. To subscribe to the Future Podcast, check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. While you're there, do us a solid and leave us a review. Your comments will help guide future programming, and hey, it'll help us with our rankings. Can't get enough content? You're in luck. We have over 150 episodes on our YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com slash thefutureishere. Make sure you don't miss out on upcoming events, workshops, live broadcasts, and webinars by signing up for our newsletter. Go to our site, thefuture.com, and click on the email sign-up button. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Future Is Here. Thanks for listening. See you in the next episode.